This podcast is brought to you by Cross Catholic Outreach. Last year, Cross Catholic Outreach provided over 30 million meals to families in need around the world. Join us in our global effort to reduce material and spiritual poverty. Learn more at crosscatholic.org/bless. Finding someone on an online Catholic dating site shouldn't be like shopping for a blender. So why do most dating sites leave you feeling like you're shopping for a spouse? At Catholic Singles, we connect members through our unique user polls and activities, which help you discover other members and their personalities and interests. Because you're a person, not a profile picture. So stop shopping and start discerning. Trust your love story to the original Catholic dating site and use the promo code BREADBOX at checkout for 20% off at catholicsingles.com. Welcome to the Will Within Podcast. This is your home for shared stories of hope, perseverance, will, and inspiration. Join us today as we share another story that brings to life the underlying beat of our lives. Consider us your virtual friends. Let's get inspired. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another exciting edition of the Will Within Podcast, and I'm your host, Regina Pontus. I am so excited to introduce you to my next guest. This is an incredible woman. Mitzi Perdue is a pure inspiration, a wonderful, dynamic individual. She's an heiress. She was an entrepreneur, or is an entrepreneur. She's still doing it, and she is written over 1,600 news and magazine articles for all different kinds of magazines, including family businesses, food, agriculture. Speaking of agriculture, she was the former president of a 35,000 women American agriculture organization. She's worked with the UN. She's had her own syndicated TV show, over 400 episodes of half-hour shows, I believe, and they were all syndicated. She married Frank Perdue, you know that name, the gentleman who was behind the chicken commercials and the chicken business. He's amazing. This story is amazing. And also now she's on to this new philanthropic endeavor, which is to stop human trafficking. We don't realize what a billion-dollar industry this is and how devastating it is worldwide. So without any further ado, I I want you to stop listening to me rambling, and let's get to her story. Welcome, Mitzi. I'm very excited to talk to you today. You have such an intriguing life. I say it's a life well lived. From being a debutante through all of the experiences that you've had and the spiritual awakenings that you've had, and you've been able to do so much with your life. I want to hear every aspect of it. I'm absolutely thrilled to hear that, and I'll give you all I've got. <laughs> so let me tell you, tell me about your upbringing. Um, you're one of five siblings, I believe. There were five of us. Yeah, there are five of you. And what was your religious uh, upbringing? Uh, We were all Episcopalian. And Uh, mother was a very firm believer and father, not so much, but he certainly attended services with the family. Yeah. Which I thought thought was neat that he was supportive, even if he wasn't devout the way she was. Oh, I so agree. And you know what I loved about your young journey? Well, first of all, you grew up in in the state that I grew up in, Massachusetts. I live in Arlington. You lived in... I'm Lincoln, Lincoln, right? And then you moved to 
uh, Beacon Hill, right? I so did. That was exciting. I did. So we were traveling on the, not the same group, but the same areas. Um, so it, you talked about, in the book, you talked about your dad having some profound messages. And one of them was, uh, I love the story about him taking the, the I think she was your, your, your helper, your service lady, to a mass on Sundays. And he was driving her in the Cadillac. And oh, I was like... I love that story. Can you tell that story? I think I'm screwing yeah. it up. But. Well, no, not a bit. You were totally right. Uh, my father was the co-founder of the Sheraton Hotel Corporation, or the, the chain of them, and he had 400 hotels at the time of his death, and he employed 20,000 people. So he was, you know, he was sort of a VIP, but he was also a complete, total egalitarian. He mm -hmm. thought every single thing was, in his world, equally important. And we had, we had a cook. She was African-American, and we also had a summer place in Dublin, New Hampshire. And Mabel used to accompany us, I mean, because she, she, she lived with us, so she went to New Hampshire, but Mabel didn't drive. And in New Hampshire, in Dublin, New Hampshire, the nearest Catholic church was, I'm gonna guess, this is guessing, but maybe 20 miles away. She didn't drive, but Father was sympathetic to the fact that she had her spiritual needs that were just really, really important to her. So he offered to drive her. And he told me that wasn't a big hardship for him because he would wait for her during the services. And I think there were a couple of hours, but he could just sit and you know go through papers and things. So he said that wasn't hard. But the tricky part was, where does she sit? And it felt a little bit awkward since he was, by the way, we're talking the 1950s. Right. A little bit awkward since she was an employee for her to sit beside him. So she ended up sitting in the back seat. And then since father was, you know, at heart, a gentleman, when that arrived at the church in his Cadillac, which was sort of a big deal in the 1950s. I think it's a nothing now, but back then it was something. So here is Mabel being driven to church by what looks like a chauffeur-driven limousine. And father was a very polite person, so he would get out and open the door for her. <laughs> I love that visual, I love the visual. It's so important to the people see, especially back then. But, but you know, is that not a neat thing simple. for- It was so simple, but it was, it was so powerful. Another story that I loved about your dad, you say that he didn't have a, a specific spiritual uh, being, but, he, every, all the actions that he did focused around others and focused around people. Sounds totally. Like and, and although I'm not going to, I would say that he was spiritual, but, and enough spiritual so that actually we didn't miss services, but he did things that, that made me absolutely convinced that he had a spiritual life. Oh. And I'll share one with you. Yeah. He said one that he hoped that the Wall Street analysts didn't learn about. But he said it was true. He said over and over again, you know, maybe six or seven times in the course of growing Sheraton hotels from one hotel to 400, he'd have a decision to make. And he'd know perfectly well that if he made the decision wrong, that it would just be almost too awful to think about that, you know, people would lose their jobs, the, the, the company would falter. On the other hand, if he did, if he made the right decisions, it would grow and people would have job security. And so, you know, there was weighing on his shoulders, a terrible responsibility. And he'd go to bed at night having no idea what to do. He'd wake up in the morning and he felt that he had talked with a higher power. Wow. 
that had told him what to do. And he said he had absolute certainty what to do. And it worked out every time. We're going to talk about listening to a higher power later because you've got several beautiful instances that I want you to share those messages of. But let's put a pin in that for right now, because I also love another story about your dad being in Boston. Um, he was also dealing with the commerce, uh, Boston Commerce, right, as well? He was head of the, uh, there was a period when he was president of the Boston Chamber of Commerce. Right. And during that time, he was also talking about, um, he did a situation with mannequins in the windows. Oh, I'm so proud of that. Oh, I yeah, my, that my heritage on this is just, oh, I'm going to burst with pride. Forgive me. <laughs> forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. But here goes. Uh, he was always, you know, Boston was a hotbed of abolitionism 150 years ago. So I, th I think to this day, Boston, I, th I think many people in Boston just really are proud of their, of their city's history. And my father in the 1950s, when he was president of the Chamber of Commerce, uh, he hated every kind of segregation. He hated people not being treated equally. And he had an idea that I think got copied throughout the country. And it was the following. He felt that if the mannequins in, in the stores, say for men's clothes, women's clothes, if they had the same representation of, say, at that time, I think Boston was 10% African-American. At that time, uh, all the mannequins were white. And he felt that it would just be very good on every count if, if the African-Americans were represented at 10% of the, you know, the, the way the city was. And he felt it would be good uh, for the white population to see blacks dressed up attractively. And I'm using terms from the 1950s. I don't think I'd use them today, but I don't think I'd use those terms today, but that it would be good for the whites to see the African-Americans dressed up exactly the way they were. But he also thought that uh, it would be moving or encouraging uh, to the African-Americans to see themselves treated exactly the same way as the whites. Mm -hmm. But the problem was when he talked to individual store owners, they all agreed with him. They thought this is a perfect idea, but there was enough prejudice back in the 1950s that if one store uh, did the right thing, which is to have the mannequins represent the population, that they might face, I don't know, backlash and boycotts and just all sorts of bad things. So no one store wanted to do it, even though they agreed it was the right thing to do. So father, as president of the Chamber of Commerce, got all the major stores to agree that on one day, 10% of the mannequins in the city of Boston would be African-American. Yeah. And the thing is, you can do things all, to, you can do the right thing all together. And you know, nobody could have a backlash or protest if everybody's doing it. So I thought it was just total, not only caring, but kind of genius to see so how to get the job done, have everybody do it on the same day. Right. Cool. You yeah, I, I was just amazed by that. I love that story. It's and, you know, so it's, it's, it, even nowadays it's so powerful. Yeah, and I was just wondering, you know, just now as I was speaking, telling, you know, this childhood experience of mine, it almost makes me teary because I'm so proud of him. Yeah. But it probably doesn't have the same ring to it that it did back in the 1950s because this, this was absolutely novel. Nobody had done it. And, you know, now we take it for granted, as we should, 
but there was somebody who started it and it was my dad right no you, you can see the visualization of this whole thing in your mind and it is so powerful so moving i really really appreciate him for doing that so tell me well he sure had his daughter's yeah, admiration right? i was gonna say you uh Right, and you actually learned so much from him. Tell me about your college and spiritual journey along the way when you've gone into college and you sat out as a rice farmer, if I'm not mistaken, after you got married the first time. That's true. Yeah. And okay, my you spiritual journey. <laughs> well, my, my spiritual journey in college, oh, good Lord. I, I hope that I'm not held responsible for things that I thought in my 20s because I was a complete total unmitigated idiot. Okay. Uh, I hope I've grown since then. I'm sure you but, have. But um, I wonder how many, how many kids today, when 30 or 40 years have gone by, are going to ask themselves, did I really believe that? Could I have been so stupid? I asked myself, could I have been so stupid? But nevertheless, my political views and my spiritual views have completely evolved. Back then, all right, we're talking the 1960s, and it was just so popular to be, oh, embarrassed to say this, but I've already stipulated that I was an idiot. Uh, it was just sort of a really good pose to pretend or maybe even be an atheist. Uh, I'm not today. I have grown. But, but I, you know, this is something that worries me about our educational system. My religious views at that point were completely formed by my college professors and my peers. And I, I was just so vulnerable to stupid thinking. I, I can see how where that's happening nowadays. I mean, when you yeah, try because to deny the existence of an external being, the creator of all, then, then the world's gonna go awry. But, but what do you do if you're, I mean, I'm gonna be sympathetic now to the kids who are 20s or late teens. If you never hear anything, if you're, you're going to be influenced by the people around you, and if you don't hear the other side, right. I, it's almost inevitable that you're going to be... It's entirely Generation X's fault. Yeah, me. yeah. It really is my generation's fault. Because we didn't allow these kids to develop with any kind of moral norms and understanding of what is really right and wrong and what, what are the benefits of learning from history and helping others. I mean, it's... And I mean, yeah, like people in front of a TV all day. It's not, you're not going to get anything out of it. Well, I used to allow my kids. I was, I was a television hostess myself for a half hour once a week. And the oh, CBS, I know. I like that story. But you also weren't shoving your kids in front of a TV all day long, I'm sure. Well, I was going to say, in spite of being, yeah, that was my profession. Yeah. Uh, I still would only allow them to, out, to watch an hour a week. And I used to tease them. I say, you watch that thing, your brain's going to turn into a cornstarch pudding. <laughs> Oh, mom sayings, love them. <laughs> so tell me about doing that uh, rice farming thing. And then you actually parlayed that as well into a position where you were going across the country and you were the president of one of the organizations. Am I not correct? Absolutely, totally. Yeah. <clears throat> when my father died, I was 27 years I have years to say, to be honest with you, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but <coughs> you led a powerful life for somebody um, in your generation. I don't mean that to be rude, but I mean, you were on the forefront of a lot of these things. So I, a lot of I was, look up to you. I'm sure. Thank you. But I was extremely aware that I was in professions that were uh, not traditionally female. Like, for example, with the rice farmers. I think of active women who were 
active rice growers, there were 5,000 men and three women. So, you know, it was totally non-traditional for a woman to be a rice farmer. And then I became a farm broadcaster and there were 750 men broadcasters and three women. And then in college, I studied, I studied government and economics, but there were economics classes where there would be 200 men and me. And frankly, it didn't bother me. I had one goal in my, well, I probably had many goals, but I had an overriding goal. In all the jobs that I took, whether I was a management intern and there were 21 men and one woman, or you know, just throughout my life, I've had non-traditional jobs for women. And my overarching goal, other than just for, I don't know, self-respect to do the best job I could, I always wanted to do such a good job that people would be eager to hire the next woman. That was my, that was my goal. Yeah, that, that's powerful. Again, I keep using the word powerful, but really you've got a lot of wonderful stories. And I also love it because you talked about math. Um, you actually, your son developed it from you, I think. And one of the amazing stories about your son progressing, it almost sounded like you raised a, a Sheldon Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do have faith uh, here. So, I, I mean, he got your math skills. Uh, I've, I've got two sons and they're, they're both, yeah, where did they come from? They're, they're just <laughs> super, I mean, I'm, I'm, I told you I was proud of my father, yep. mm, even more proud of my sons. There you go. How did you get into the math? Did you always discover that you loved math or was that in college? And then you parlayed that with the, with the farm racing stuff um, because you were able to talk business with a lot of people? I think it really helped to have been a government and economics major. And as for loving math, I, I, I think I just had a natural bent for it. I was the only one in my school of 400 who would always get perfect three-hour math exams. So I had a bent for it, and I love numbers, and I admire scientists who do that. Uh, how I got into rice farming, when my father died, and I was, I was 27, I came into my inheritance. Nobody expected father to die at 70, and suddenly, you know, I'm a 27-year-old with, uh, well, the phrase we used to use was filthy, stinking rich. Mm -hmm. uh, but my siblings and I, I respect them and I'm kind of happy about myself. Uh, none of us spent the money on racehorses or yachts or, or private airplanes. All of us invested in it. All of us invested the money that we, set, that we inherited. And all of us, I think to this day, except I have a sister who's so old that it's medically necessary that she go first class. But except for medical necessity, we all go economy. In, in big cities, we're very apt to go uh, use the subways and not show for driven limousines. So you and Frank used to do that all the time, right? All the time. <laughs> I, I, I like it. But how that relates to rice. I was living in California at the time. And I thought, you know, here I've got this great big lump of money. And I don't intend to buy a yacht with it or designer clothes. or I, Yeah, I, we were brought up frugal which good New Englanders are. I mean, would you agree that New Englanders, we tend towards frugal? Yeah. And I, I'm proud of that because, boy, you don't go bankrupt real fast if you're frugal. And we're strong too. I remember you telling a story about one of your friends, uh, everybody was saying, put on a coat, put on a coat. And the guy was walking outside in 20 degree weather with no shoes on because he was a good uh, stock, Irish, not Irish stock. Good, good New England stock. stock. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, that, that we're brought up to be tough and frugal. Right. Well, okay, so being brought up to be tough and frugal, or at least the frugal part, I didn't spend it on high living. 
I spent four years studying agriculture because I decided I would put the money into productive agricultural land. But I also felt that if I just slapped down the money real fast, I'd probably lose it. There's a phrase I love, a fool and her money are soon courted. Yeah. Uh, but, but back to getting into rice. I did spend four years taking, say, courses at the local university, like agricultural accounting, agronomy, rural appraisal. Four years of intense, as if I was getting a doctorate, studying agriculture and land prices and investing in land. I was going to say, you already got in the Harvard and the George Washington degree. Now you're in California doing all the sex study for farming, right? Yeah, but I put the same kind of effort into yep. studying this as I yep. would have if I were getting a doctorate. Yep. And after four years, I, I investigated, I think it was 40 different farms before settling on one. And it turned out to be a fabulous bargain. And I made enough money with that to buy another. And I made enough money with that one to buy still more. And eventually, the money that I inherited, I, some of the money that I inherited was in trusts. I couldn't do anything with it. But a third of, of what came my way, I could invest myself or spend if I had chosen. And I figure now, I'm 79 and proud of it, by the way. But in the, I guess we're talking 60 years since, since I inherited the money, I've increased it 60 times more than what the banks who held the trusts did. And so I'm, I'm a huge advocate. And, and by the way, that's enabled me to be, how about, I'm trying to think of an appropriate word that doesn't sound too prideful, yeah. but I'm going to flunk. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really proud that, that, the financial success I've had has made me able to be more philanthropic than I would have been otherwise. Right. I'm going to tell you about when we start talking, we, we can even start talking about now, after we talk about the fact that you were doing all this, meeting all these people, having all these big positions, then you also eventually met Frank. And you also, how do I want to say this? Um, you started, was it right before you met Frank or right after you met Frank that you started getting the spiritual message when you were jogging? I, I, I know. Oh, actually, that was before, before oh, I met Frank. Yeah. Okay, yes. Tell me about those first because I want to dovetail those into the major thing, project you're working on right now. Okay. Which is so uh, powerful. You've heard of Runner's High where maybe yep. you've run harder and faster than normal. And I had this happen where I was, um, I'm a jogger, but I'm, I'm a somewhat lazy jogger. I I might go for half an hour, possibly an hour, and I, I don't push myself all that hard. I think, to my mind, it's just more important to do it than to uh, than to kill yourself at it. So, but one day, I really was pushing myself, and all of a sudden, as I was walking, as I was running, you know, along a, a bed of flowers, they started to glow. Like, like the Holy Grail, they just sort of radiated intense beauty. And I looked around and wherever I looked, everything was just more beautiful than I'd ever seen in my entire life. It was, it was how about, I've never taken an illegal drug, but I imagine this would be like the experience of the best possible drug in the world. But it was just, it was, it was crazy, beautiful, fulfilling, happy, joyous. And I heard a voice and the voice 
asked if I would like to know the difference between good and evil. And I said, yes. And the voice told me that good is that which is, that you can recognize it because it's energized by healing, growth, enlightenment. Evil, on the other hand, is that which is energized by division, hate, uh, the stalling of growth, shrinking of the person. And I thought that made so much sense to me that I've believed it ever since. I feel that I know the difference between good and evil. What, what energizes it? Is it energized by things that, that help humanity? Or is it energized by pain and suffering? Right. Powerful. How did you incorporate that message as soon as you heard it? What did you do with that, do you think? Did you change I sort of had aspects my, of yourself? Or? I shared it with everybody I could, it made, and, I, and I still share it. Uh, but then I'd had, it was such a beautiful, fulfilling, exciting, ecstatic experience. If I began running harder, hoping that I could get back to it again. I think it probably took a year or so, you know, with me waiting for another experience like that. And then finally one day it could, it did. And I knew it was happening because again, everything began to just glow, this beautiful golden, like a halo, except around everything. And in this case, it asked me if I would like to know the meaning of life. And well, yes, I'd very much like me to know the meaning of life. And the voice said to serve one another. And I, it, that just makes all the sense in the world to me. I think we're here to serve one another. And it happened one third time. And the th yeah, probably a year later. Let's see, I just gave you the meaning of life. Okay, now the purpose of life. Right. To love one another. And you had all these before you met Frank, right? I did. And I know that he incorporated a lot of these things. The love story between you two is adorable. I mean, you were practically engaged at 38 hours in. I was crazy. So well, actually, I... The story that um, you get, you know, the TV shows now where you get married before you even meet anybody or something like that. Crazy. That's well, uh, story. I, allow me to fine-tune something that you just said. You said okay. thir 38 hours or something? Yeah. Actually, five minutes. Oh, no. Here, here's what happened. We met at a party in Washington, D.C. I was living in California growing rice. He was living in Maryland, and he had come to D.C. for this party. And he arrived late, and I had to leave early. So we only overlapped by 10 minutes. Wow. And the first five minutes, uh, it was quickly established that we were both divorced. And we started talking about how we would never entertain the possibility of the notion of the concept of remarriage because marriage just seemed designed to make people miserable and then somewhere like five minutes into it we started talking about how that was sad because it meant uh, growing old alone and then we agreed that that was our fate because we'd never trust anybody again and then he looked down at me and he said I believe I could trust you and I looked up at him and I said, I believe I could trust you. I love that. And the next four minutes were spent talking about what our marriage would be like. Oh it my would God, be, I love that. Well, it would be supportive and not competitive, would be there for each other in the good times and the bad times. And? It's almost like you knew each other in the previous life. And just yes. To, yeah. 
do, does your faith allow for the possibility that the souls have gone on forever? I think I'm Catholic, and I think that we know each other before we even get here. And when that's, we complete each other, when we come back. That's how I felt. Uh, and it does, I, you know, that's the, maybe the most spiritual thing that's happened to me in my life, that two people who were terrified of marriage and who'd had, you know, unhappy ones before, that, that we could both, in a leap of faith, make this commitment. And I had to return to California, but when I came, uh, when I came back to see him again, because we'd talk every night on the phone, when I came back to see him a few weeks later, I had known him five hours when he gave me my engagement ring. Wow. It was an emerald, right? It was a huge it was a, emerald or something like that? It, it was a historic emerald. Yeah. And uh, our church, I'm, I'm Episcopalian, which is as close to, to Catholic as you can get. I mean, I attend uh, Catholic services frequently, and there's... Oh, it, it's just, I'm so at home in the Catholic service, but the Episcopalian service, or at least uh, back in 1988, I'm not sure what it is today, but back then, you can't get married in the Episcopalian church without a six weeks prenuptial counseling period. And we wanted to start the clock ticking. And so the third time I see this man in my life was to meet in the rectory of, of our church in New York. And Reverend Drachel said, oh, I'm so happy for you. This is so wonderful. Marriage is such a joyous uh, occasion. How long have you known each other? And I said, well, do you mean in person? And he said, well, yes. And so I look at my watch and I say, doing a little calculating, 36 hours. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm laughing so hard. That's a great story. Didn't he end up talking to both of you separately to make sure he, everything was copacetic? He, yeah, actually his first words were, marriage is, is a solemn, holy estate and you can't just jump into it like that. Um, I'll have to talk with you each separately. And he talked with me for an hour and he talked with Frank for an hour. And when he was talking with me, he was saying, oh, he was asking me about my father. And I said, Father was a very, very successful man. He was also kind of a shy man. Uh, he was very ethical. He wasn't good at, at expressing affection. I mean, I'm not sure if I ever hugged him because, because he just wasn't good at expressing. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. well uh, but, you know, he was born in 1897, and I think there are fashions in, uh, mm -hmm. in child rearing. And, there, there was a period, I think, in the 1920s where they were scared that if you were too affectionate with your children, you'd spoil them. Mm -hmm. uh, so he wasn't affectionate and he wasn't demonstrative. But here I am talking to the minister, telling him what my father was like. But I said, we absolutely knew for certain that he adored us and that the, you know, the world kind of revolved around us. So he, didn't, he wasn't mushy about it, but we knew that we were loved. And I also said that he was capable of just tremendous focus where if he's thinking of a problem, the rest of the world doesn't exist. And at the end of the hour, Reverend Drachel told me, dear Eliz Mitzi, that you have just perfectly described your future husband. Wow. And I, you know, I've always wished that, that I knew what, uh, what Frank and Reverend Drachel talked about, but at the end of the two hours, uh, he said the marriage can proceed. And six weeks, six weeks later, we married. Yeah, people, he must have known right there and then it was meant to be. It well, you know, the really cool thing, uh, I, I've stayed in touch with Reverend Drazel 
Frank's been gone 15 years, but 15 is years. Still alive? Uh, Reverend Drazel still is, yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, and he said that, that he knew right off that, that this was serious and that we were serious people and that he was fine with, uh, with performing the ceremony. I love the fact that um, messages your father instilled knew Frank had had as well. Because the, like they were talking about egalitarian efforts and Frank was the same way. Frank was as egalitarian as they make them. And for proof of that, that we would always go by subways rather than chauffeur-driven Rolls Royces, which he could have. I mean, he was successful enough that he sure could have afforded it. He also, like my family, up until uh, when he was ill, like in his mid-80s, it was medically necessary that we go first class so that his legs could stretch out. But, but we could go like to Europe and would go economy. So he was, he, he didn't feel the need to show to off his wealth. Ears. I was just saying, you don't have to put on ears. When you know you have it in your being to be a decent human being, you don't have to put on ears that you have a lot of wealth. And you know something else that he did that I just cherish? We had a program for almost 17 years in which our goal was to entertain every single person who worked for the company, invite them to our home for dinner. Didn't you have like 20,000 people? Uh, when we first married, it was 16,000. So, and we used to have them, you know, for many years on average would have three times a month, would have a hundred people a week. And at these, and this is getting back to how Frank was an egalitarian. He would wait on, uh, there was a buffet table and he would stand behind the buffet table and wait on his employees. And you know, it could be truckers, sanitation people, accountants, administrative assistants, everybody. Mm-hmm. He, would, he would wait Even on the people who worked with him. Yep. And it's a story, it's similar to my story when I was working once and my boss was a guest that the, the president of the company of Arthur D. Little where I used to work. He came walking by and I said, oh, by the way, will you give this to your secretary? And I thought my boss was going to fall over. I said, listen, you need to treat, uh, to my boss, you need to treat everybody the same. Regardless of whether they're the janitor or whether they're the president of the company. I said, the guy has to walk by his secretary in order to get to his office. Let him give her a package. Stop wasting the time for the mail guy to do it. And, and it's the same thing. You need to have that kind of mentality. I know it sounds Well, like how did your boss take, take it? My was boss he, was going to fall over. Wait, wait, wait. I, I, I so misspoke. I don't mean your boss. How about the, the head of the company? Oh, he had no problem with that. He said, yeah, sure. He was, no, as a matter of fact, he was, uh, the same day, he happened to sit, run into me again. Now, this, there was like 1,400 people in Cambridge, Mass, in that ADL office. And he ended up um, coming out, and I said, you want to go to lunch with us? He was like, yeah, I have another meeting I have to go to, but. Maybe some other day because it was a bunch of us girls going out to lunch. But he was the same kind of guy that would have a meal, get it from the cafeteria, and sit down at any table and just start um, eating with people, just chatting with them. So it's the same kind of similar mentality as Frank. Well, actually, you know, when Frank would go to a factory, and I often got to a processing plant, I'd often get to go along with him. Uh, He'd sit at the employee cafeteria and talk with anybody. See? In fact, I have a favorite memory of that because one day I was at our Accomac plant, which is in Virginia, in the eastern shore of Virginia. And I got to talking with this woman about, she was very curious what my life was like because I mean, she knew that I was Mrs. Frank Purdue. So since she'd been asking me a lot about my life, I thought, you know, turnarounds fair play. I'll ask her about her life. 
And what I really wanted to know was, what's it like working in a processing facility doing the same thing day after day, year after year? Only I, I really hope that I was more diplomatic in how I expressed this than what I just said to you, because I was, yeah, I'm not so more sort of indirect, but I knew what I wanted to know. And her answer was, it's fabulous. Every day is different. I like coming to work. And I'm thinking, that doesn't sound possible. Uh, and so, you know, I, I sort of was skeptical. I mean, really? And she said, the only way I could convince you is if you'd come in and work beside me for a day. And I said, you get me permission to do it and I'll be there. That's good. And like two or three days later, uh, here I am, you know, the wife of the owner of the whole thing in a factory that I think it has more than a thousand people. I mean, it could be 2000 for all I know. There's a lot of people there. And uh, I, I had the job standing beside her, uh, putting the legs of chickens, their dead chickens, uh, in the shackles so that they'll continue on in kind of an assembly line kind of thing. And uh, I, I'm going to invite you to make a guess, but... Uh, I mean, I'm kind of hoping you'll get the wrong answer so that I can tell what. But well, here, here goes. Do you think it's boring to be on an, the equivalent of an assembly line day after day doing the same thing month after month, year after year? Well, the way you say it, yes, I would say that. I would say that. Uh, thank you. I, want, I, I truly wanted that I answer because, <laughs> because that was what I was expecting. I mean, that's what I believed. Instead, she was totally right. Let's see, where I was, and I'm putting in quotations, where I was working, because I was worth exactly what they paid me, because I wasn't good at it, but... Okay, Lucille Ball, you just reminded me of the chocolate. <laughs> yes, yes, that's me. <laughs> that's so me. Uh, but here's what I learned, that you're not just quietly working. No, you're talking with your friends, you're talking about maybe a TV show from last night, or who's dating who, or... Uh, what Princess Diana was up to, or, you know, just, it was just nonstop chatter, chatter, chatter. And it was kind of fun. And there was a lot of teasing and joking. And uh, I had a great time. And I could see what she was talking about that. But I said, you know, it must really depend a lot. Do you like the people around you? And she said, the people in human resources put a huge amount of effort to put compatible people together. Oh, good idea. Makes sense. Not the worst than working with people you don't like. But I think they're probably pretty careful about who they hire and who they put together. Yeah. But, but I had a great experience. I, I just love the visual of, of him and you having parties with just the general workers once a week. Was it once a week or once a month? Just your it average be, one of secretaries, line people, the whole thing? Everybody. Uh, I, a favorite was the truckers. They'd, they'd come in groups so that they'd know each other because we knew that if you're, I mean, just imagine hypothetically that you're a trucker you probably aren't sure what to wear or how to act at the big boss's house. So we invited them in groups so that there would be like safety in numbers. Everybody could figure out what they wanted to wear and uh, be around their friends. And we really wanted them to have fun. So, and we didn't want them to spend money buying new clothes. Where were you at that time, Connecticut? Uh, this, this is uh, Salisbury, Maryland. Okay. But the home we lived in, it had a tennis court, it had a volleyball court, it had a basketball court, it had a uh, horseshoes, it had a pool table. So we'd ask people to come dressed for their sport and that it was against the rules to buy new clothes. 
because we didn't want them to have to waste their very hard-earned money yep. on clothes for something that they'd wear once. So we asked them to dress for their sport. And that means when you arrive at the house, you're not scared thinking, right. what do I say? What fork do I use? Yep, you're now right. you're out with your friends playing horseshoes. Yep. I think that's great. I love it. I love the visual of the whole thing. So let me ask you a question. Before we get to the part of the new message that you got, you said that in 2019, I recently, you, you felt an experience of a, trying to help out with human trafficking, which is a very, very, very serious thing we need to deal with in this society nowadays. And I want to talk to you about that. But before we do, I want to talk to you about how did it feel like being labeled a mother of the year in 2003? Oh, I love it. I mean, uh, among <laughs> my collection. Which got you that award? I'm not even sure why I got nominated for it, but I totally endorse the idea of, uh, again, this is going to sound so vain and I'm embarrassed, but here goes. I think having role models is a good thing. I've heard an expression, if you can't see it, you can't live it. And so what if the, the mother of the year, each state has a mother of the year, and we're supposed to go around for a year talking about Know, values that we share and doing public speaking. And um, I, I thought it was just a totally good thing because I'm a passionate believer in, in families. I think it's, oh, I'm going to be so unpopular for saying this, but it's the foundation of what we're about in this society. We're losing that. We're losing the emphasis of family. And, and you're right. The exact essence of what we're all about. I mean, how do you really train children mm -hmm. to have healthy, productive, giving lives if, if they don't have a foundation. And, and especially since, you know, from my heart, the best thing that ever happened to me. Well, Mary and Frank, there, there are a couple of things that sort of tie for first place. Being Frank's wife was heaven for me, but being a mother of my two kids is just beyond any ability I have to express I would it is the whole your whole life has been a wonderful inspiration a very full and giving life tell me about um the last message you got in 2019 because i believe personally when i was reading your book and then also hearing of that about human trafficking helping to stop that it tied all in together for me and i know there's a year's differences but i mean 10 15 years big difference but still the same message going across on April 11th of more than a year ago, I heard a lecture that, that changed my life and I expect to devote the rest of my life and the resources that I have, including the money that I've made, to helping stop what I take to be one of the worst scourges that man can perpetrate upon another man, woman, or child. And I use man generically. I, I, let, me, let me phrase it more accurately. The worst thing that people can do to each other, I think, is enslaving each other. Mm -hmm. And with human trafficking, I'd heard that expression. I mean, who hasn't heard the words human trafficking? But I didn't really, it sort of glided by. I didn't realize, I didn't have any sense of how horrific it is. But do you have young girls in your life? Maybe yes. nieces, nephews, yep. grandchildren? I heard that a 12-year-old girl who's being sex trafficked, her life expectancy is seven years or less. She's going to die of suicide, overdose, disease, or murder. 
she's going to be forced to have sex up to 12 times a night with strangers, with different men, every day of the year, whether she's got her period or not. Yeah, that people could do that to each other. It just seemed like the worst thing that I'd ever heard of. And that made me think this is about as dark and terrible a subject as you can think about. But on the other hand, if you can do anything to alleviate it, you're, you're doing one of the most important jobs in the world. And so that's how I got into it. And tell us about the project itself. Well, I have two things that I've got a it's lifetime of experience. the organization you decided to do too, by the way? It's called well, Win This Fight? It's called Win This Fight, Stop Human Trafficking. Oh, where do I even start? <laughs> uh, the premise of it is that I'm never going to be any good at rescuing a child or rehabilitating a child. Or, I mean, there's a whole world of things that are completely necessary that I couldn't do. But I could help raise funds, which is needed. And I could help raise awareness. And I came up with a project, which, I mean, each of us has our reasons to be miserable that COVID-19 happened, but I'll tell you mine. There's um, silver lining and everything, and it sounds like this is yours. Well, uh, I'm looking for the silver lining, but actually it, it, it's sort of on the brink of happening, the silver lining. But here was the plan. Because of my social background, it's not hard for me to get to talk with people of ultra high net worth. I, I do public speaking and, I, and also I have a partner in this. It's a bank that has 750 billionaire clients. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Waste not, well, not, get those people. Well, I had a theory that I wouldn't ask anybody directly for money. Because actually it's harder than you might think for even a very wealthy person to give money because they've probably allocated what they can allocate to the charities that they already love and are committed to. But a lot of ultra high net worth people have objects worth a million dollars or more that maybe they're tired of, or they have duplicates, or they just want to give it. But if they give it to an anti-trafficking charity, it's awfully hard for the charity to get anything. You know, they don't have the expertise for selling it. So that's a problem. So how do you convert ultra expensive items into cash. If you go through a broker, the broker is typically going to take 40%. So to give an absolute case example, one of the donations is a million dollar necklace that belonged to Marlena Dietrich, the movie actress. Million dollars. It's a praise that it would sell for that. It's diamonds and it's gorgeous. If the person who wanted to donate to his favorite anti-trafficking charity, if he gave it to a broker, of the million dollars that it would sell for, he could only give 600,000. If he went through an auction house, he could only give 800,000. But there's a major auction house in New York that agreed that because they hate human trafficking, they would forego the commission mm. so that if this guy sells his necklace, the full hundred thousand, the full million goes to his Child Liberation Foundation. And, and he gets to pick the organization that he wants it to go to? How exactly. How people get educated on to what organizations they might want to, to give the uh, They probably to? don't even hear of me until they've, they're aware of, I mean, the people who are going to give away a million dollar thing, it's highly likely that they're already aware of the issue. Although in some cases, uh, they hear talks from me and come up to me afterwards and, and want to get involved. But the donations so far, the biggest is a 69 carat ruby. Oh it God. belonged to a Sung Dynasty emperor, probably worth 60 million. Oh my God. 
there's one of the larger. You can break that up to whatever different organizations he wants. Ten percent here, five percent here. Well, I already know this is a man from Taipei. I was I was in Taipei doing my fundraising. I was put together with him. Never met him before or heard of him before, but he had heard of what I was up to, and I was hoping for, I don't know, something. But I wasn't expecting what happened, and I don't think he was really planning and giving me something so amazing. But here's what happened: elderly gentleman, his family were the hereditary curator of the emperor's of the different of the dynasty's jewels, and when Taiwan separated from mainland China, his family brought some of the jewels with him, and including this. 69 carat ruby, and by the way, a 69 carat ruby. To visualize how big that is, think of a golf ball that's maybe 10% smaller than a golf ball. And I've had this thing in my hand. OMG! Okay, so we're sitting in his his upstairs tea room, and、uh, he asked me a, a very real question. He said, "The people who are traffickers, yeah, you know, they're part of cartels of organized crime. They make." A hundred and fifty billion dollars a year out of human trafficking.、Uh, aren't you afraid that they're going to find you and kill you? And I just blurted out、uh, the following: I said, "I'm seventy-nine years old. I believe in this cause. I don't care." And、wow. at that point, he got up and he walked over to a wall of the room and pulled aside a curtain. And behind the curtain was a safe, and then he, you know, did whatever you do to a safe, spinning the dials or whatever, and brought back the sixty-nine carat ruby. Well, he knew you would give your life for this for this cause. Yeah, he could tell it. You know what you remind me of? I don't want you to get a big head, okay? Don't get a big head. I'm very prone <laughs> to a big head. But do you have you ever heard of Saint Catherine Drexel? No. Saint Catherine Drexel is.、Um, Debutante, a philanthrop, a philanthropist, who she came from obviously a lot of money, and she was born in eighteen eighteen eighty five. She went to see Leo the Thirteenth, and she said to him, "You need to do something," because she was giving a lot of money to help indigenous people and African Americans. And he said, "What?" She goes, "Can't you get missionaries over there?" He goes, "Why don't you do it yourself?" So she gave up her entire life and gave up all of her money and wealth. To help the indigenous and African American people, wow! She was just canonized in two thousand. Oh my gosh! Yeah, you need to look her up. Oh, I, I will. I, I don't want to give you a big head, but that's kind of where, where you sound like you're heading. I'm not but, but, canonized, but you know. But, but my feeling is that the inspiration is the best gift anybody can give anybody else. And so, so to me, I see the messages you got years ago, the all of a sudden message you got in two thousand nineteen, and then doing this right now. You're moving along the same vein as what she did. Well,、I'm、giving away all of all of all your you're consolidating all the stuff you have, the abilities you have to bring everything together to stop, because you, like you said, the messages you got are are profound. Like this whole this whole message here about about the essence of life. To serve one another.、That's、I mean,、right. I, I'm trying、life. to act out on the message I I was given. Granted. Wow. So I mean, I don't know if you ever made the connection, but I saw it right away. Well,、And、actually, I, I I I I never did, but、um, and of course I'm not worthy of it. However, I will do my absolute best with every fiber of my body to 
to head in that and direction. And I will help you in any way I can. I mean, I have a lot of connections. I, I, I don't have a lot of high connections, but I'm a little Miss Networker. I've no, been known like that my entire life. So anything you need, anything that I can possibly help you with, I would love to help you with this project. Well, you know, there's something that I, I wish our listeners would do. The larger my blog is, uh, the more cloud I have. And I even have the possibility of having a, a podcast that would be sponsored by a very large global women's network. And boy, if I could have ever more I will people. Everybody there, everybody that I know, my LinkedIn people have got about three or 4,000 people there. I will, I will be. Oh my gosh. To, wow. Yeah. I'd be happy to send out the message. When are you going to start the podcast? Uh, I'm still negotiating. You know, the world is a miracle as far as I'm concerned, because you spoke of silver linings and I was so down when, when I realized that this auction that might, might've raised a hundred million or a quarter of a billion dollars, which could do so much good. And then because of COVID-19, it's off the table, but there is a silver no, it's lining. it's postponed, honey. It's not I'm off postponed. the table, it's postponed. Okay, postponed. But at this moment today, I actually have four organizations that are talking with me about having of their sponsoring a global podcast that would have to do with human trafficking four different ones and and one well i i that it'll work out but there there are four that are exploring with me the possibility well that's so i mean that would help so many people worldwide where do you see the largest uh human trafficking happen in india do you, is there a specific continent that it happens a lot more on? It happens more than you could possibly imagine in the United States. And here's why. Uh, horrifying. Because since this is a money-making enterprise, they go where the money is. And I, I'm told that New York City, or at least up until COVID-19, that it was the world capital because so there was so much money to be made. I, I, had, a, I had a New York uh, policeman tell me that if you're in New York and you have four girls in your quote stable, that you can have a tax-free income of a million dollars a year. So the incentive to, to do it is just enormous. Well, I will do all my effort to make sure that you get your message out and I will work with you to make sure you can get that auction out as well. I'll do everything I possibly can. I'd be so grateful. You. I'd be so grateful. Please. But there will be untold people throughout the world that if we can, if we can help even a little, we're making a fantastic difference. Just a little dent, exactly. Is there anything else that you want to convey during this, this talk? I want well, to I'd love sure to have people. Everything. Well, I want people, if they're willing, uh, come to winthisfight.org. And, and if you get it wrong, say, come by mistake, it'll still get to me. But winthisfight.org. There's uh, a contact sheet where you can communicate with me and I'll answer you. Okay, that's great. Uh, not to veer off the track a little bit, but, you know, WTF abbreviation. Do you, okay, <laughs> let me tell you the story behind that. Okay. Um, I, I had another name for it. I forget what the name was. But this man who teaches neuroscience called me up and he said, do you realize that the name that you chose, it was something like anti-trafficking auction. He said, that name sucks. He said, the problem with it is it's not memorable and it doesn't have a call to action. He said, 
And then he looked up for me and found the name when this fight was available. And I said, but what about the WTF? And he said, that's the best part of it. That makes it memorable. And he said, not only that, but it's appropriate. This thing is so awful that WTF is an appropriate response. Wow. Well, I want everybody to go to, to winthisfight.org. And again, By the way, if I could have bought the name WTF, I would have, but I think it's like $100,000 or oh, really? something. Well, no, Win This Fight is fine. But thank you so much for doing this today. It, may, it meant a lot. I really believe that we need to get the message out for people to work to better the society. And you're well, doing tremendous work. I'm overjoyed that you included me. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. God bless. And I hope we're within family. You will do everything you can to help her out. Thank you. Thank, thank, you, thank you. Thank you. And a big hug to all your listeners. Oh, thanks. Bye-bye. God bless. Bye. Many thanks for Mitzi Purdue for taking the time to talk to me. This was such an amazing conversation. This had to be the best interview or one of the best interviews I have ever done. And I've only done 23, but it's one of the best. So thanks again to Mitzi. I will do whatever I can. Like I said, we'll post the podcast that we just did. It's on my website. You'll find it on her website. Let's again stop human trafficking. So go to winthisfight.org. And let's do what we can to eradicate this horrific situation. Remember my Will Within family to hit that like button as they say share the podcast be sure to share it and if you want to email me please feel free to do so at will within podcast at gmail.com i'd love to hear your stories let's get more exciting people like mitzi and let's do everything we can to help her out in this race to end the scourge of human trafficking let's stop it now so until next week i will within family be blessed Looking for a way to build daily prayer discipline? Seen the rise in mindfulness meditation, but not sure if it is possible to meditate in a way that's consistent with your Catholic faith? Just looking for a way to breathe new life into your existing prayer routine? No matter what you're looking for, Hollow is here to help. Hollow is a Catholic prayer and meditation app that helps users deepen their relationship with God through audio-guided contemplative prayer sessions. From meditations on the daily gospel to the rosary to daily examines, Hollow has something for everyone. Hollow is the number one Catholic app in the U.S. It is free to download and has permanently free content, but you can also check out all of the premium sessions for 30 days, risk-free, by signing up at www.hollow.com dot app slash breadbox.